Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. What voters say about manufacturing in America, simply put, two words, preserve and grow. Today on the show, Senator Sherrod Brown, what an auto worker goes through every day on the job, and we hear from the author of a new book, Wealth Supremacy. Welcome to the Monday, October 9th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have three guests on the show today. Moments from now, we'll be hearing from Senator Sherrod Brown, longtime supporter of America's workforce, going back to the days when he was in the House, and I'm sure he's going to have a few comments on what's happening in the House today. First off, though, he is not happy with the Biden administration. Why? Because of trade and economic trends, which he says have devastating implications for the textile and apparel industry. This is an industry that's been hit hard over the last 30, 40 years, along with steel and auto. And speaking of auto, Senator J.D. Vance has introduced what he called the Drive American Act, which would eliminate over $100 billion in existing electric vehicle subsidies and replace them with the America First Credit Act, and that would promote gas-powered vehicles in the United States. So, so much for EVs, go back to fossil fuels. Now, Senator Brown is of the opinion, wait a minute, China is leading the pack when it comes to EV production, and if we don't incentivize that industry, they're going to get all of it. So, Sherrod Brown will be our first guest. Sarah Lazar will be joining us as our second guest. She's a newcomer to the show, and she's one of the great writers with The Nation magazine. We've had many of them on over the years. She's also the editor of Workday magazine and a contributing editor for In These Times, another wonderful publication. Well, in her um, article for The Nation, it's titled, Your Body Suffers the Unremarkable Pain of an Auto Assembly Line Worker. And in this piece... She talks to uh, three workers, one of them, Dan Carpenter. This guy's not even 40 years of age, and he suffers from neck pain so severe. He said at one time he thought he was having a stroke. Um, There's another individual who uh, puts windshields into cars. And the bottom line is this. Auto workers are getting hurt every day on the job. It's not like you're losing an arm or a leg. That's what they call musculoskeletal injuries. And they just build up over time to the point where you're taking Advil and Motrin almost every day. It's repetitive motion. And uh, instead of hiring more people, a lot of these workers are on the job for 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week. And it's, uh, it's really, really making life difficult for them. Their family life has been compromised, and as a result, um, they're demanding, as you know, a 32-hour work week. And Sarah's going to talk about that. 
And while we're talking about the uh, auto workers, I want to drive you to the uh, UAW website, uaw.org. They released a new video, you know, when Trump visited Detroit. He said he was going to talk to uh, union workers, which he did not. He went to a non-union plant. So the UAW released a new video showing uh, Trump's record (laughs) when it comes to labor. Not very good. Not very good. In fact, if you get an opportunity to go to AFLCIO.org, they've got a really good posting on uh, his track record over the years going back. I mean, when he was uh, doing construction in uh, New York City. So Sarah is going to be our uh, second guest, Sarah Lazar. Lastly, we're going to hear from Marjorie Kelly. She's based in Boston, and she is a senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative, which is a nonprofit group. She's the author of three books. She has appeared in a number of publications, including the Harvard Business Review, Boston Globe, San Francisco Chronicle. And uh, this book, Wealth Supremacy, it's how the extractive economy and the bias rules of capitalism has driven the crisis in America today of income inequality. So essentially, you've got very, very rich people taking money from the rest of us. That's kind of what's going on. And she points out, in a democratic society, which is founded on the truth that all people are created equal. Remember that? Well, we have permitted an economic system based on the contrary principle to take root. And she argues we're beyond the point of reform. What we need is something beyond both capitalism and socialism. We need a democratic economy. And she points out some of this is happening right now. Community land trusts, municipal electric utilities, what she calls B corporations, city and state-owned banks. These are things that need to be expanded so we can get away from wealth supremacy. So uh, Marjorie Kelly will be our third guest right here on America's Workforce. Now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. A staggering 94%. 94% of likely Republican primary voters want our political candidates to prioritize preserving and growing manufacturing in the United States. This is according to new polling conducted for the Alliance for American Manufacturing, one of our partners here on America's Workforce. The majority of Republican voters, we're talking 79%, so what is that, four out of five, want political candidates to prioritize creating more manufacturing jobs in the country and to strengthen domestic supply chains rather than lowering consumer costs by increasing access to imports. Scott Paul heads the alliance, and he says, in case anybody was left unconvinced, This new poll data proves that Republican presidential candidates who support so-called free trade are out of touch with their own base. This isn't the GOP of the 1990s. Republican voters do not want more trade deals. They want to see growing American factories, stronger supply chains, and more training for blue-collar jobs. Voters are very clear on the policy. They want the next president to prioritize growing American manufacturing by doing things like enforcing our nation's trade laws, 
implementing Buy America provisions and putting in place investment restrictions. Republican voters know that America's factory jobs will build our future and ensure America's economic strength and national security. Now, Scott says it's up to the Republican presidential candidates to show that they're ready not just to push back against China, but also to fortify America's manufacturing base. Our organization is nonpartisan and does not endorse presidential candidates. We can say this. Candidates who reject tariffs, support free trade, and want to roll back investments in in America are completely out of touch with voters. And then we have some specific findings from the poll. More than 8 in 10, 84% of Republican voters support investing in rebuilding our infrastructure. 86% agree that taxpayer dollars should go toward infrastructure projects that utilize American-made products like iron, steel, other construction materials, rather than imports. Also, a majority of Republican voters, 81%, agree that the federal government's purchase of Too many foreign-made goods over made-in-the-USA products has caused manufacturing jobs to disappear in America. Also, a majority, 69% of voters, these are Republicans, say their party is at best when the U.S. pursues a trade policy that prioritizes the interests of American workers as well as national security. Key word, national security. A plurality, 45%, thinks factories are now returning. And a majority, 56%, dismiss the notion that factory jobs are never coming back. However, 8 in 10, 80% respondents still think that China is beating the U.S. in manufacturing. And uh, there's some degree of truth to that, no doubt. 8 in 10 voters, 79%, and these are Republicans, say that America's economic future depends on bringing back training programs for blue-collar jobs like manufacturing rather than prioritizing four-year college degrees. How about that? How many times have we talked about the building trades programs? You know, pathway to the middle class. And there's one more here. 8 in 10 Republican voters, 81%, agree that the federal government should be able to prohibit U.S. corporations from investing in manufacturing in other countries if it poses a threat to U.S. and national security. So really interesting polling here. Again, Republican voters voicing their support for strong manufacturing policies made in the USA. That's what it's all about. Go to AmericanManufacturing.org. And you could read more about that. All right, let's go to uh, line number one from Washington right now is Senator Sherrod Brown, who joins us almost every month right here on America's Workforce, something he's been doing for, my gosh, almost 30 years now. Senator, I, I know you're always on the side of workers, and we do appreciate that here on America's Workforce. And uh, sadly, over the years, there's been so many trade deals that have not favored workers. I mean, steel, auto, I mean, we could go on. And I know today there's a, there's an issue with textiles, the textile industry and manufacturing and supporting workers there. Um, what's going on there and what can, uh, what can the white house do about this Senator? Well, we need the white house to step up as you know, from this show, I've 
taken on presidents of both parties on, on trade agreements, whether it's NAFTA, whether it was Trump or Bush or Clinton or Obama. And uh, we are making sure this president stands strong. I've sent a bipartisan letter with the North Carolina Republican uh, making sure they stand strong on, on, on support for textile industry. So they've been hit as auto and steel um, have been hit hard by by um, bad trade policies. So as the textile industry, I, I wear suits that were made by union workers in Cleveland. Um, that plant shut down, unfortunately, and moved its production. There's a, there was another plant in Chicago that plant doesn't make as much as it used to. Um, still makes some textiles and some apparel, but it's... Um, it gets harder and harder under U.S. trade law. So um, we just want to make sure the administration identifies the root problems facing the industry and develops robust solutions and engages directly with, with this industry to make sure this stuff is still made in the U.S. by union workers whenever possible. Yeah, I remember that was, uh, that was Hugo Boss, the company that you're talking about there. Senators, probably some in Congress that feel it's too late to save this industry. Do you, are you hearing that on the Hill? Well, there have been some in Congress that have never cared about these industries. And um, that's when, you know, we passed these trade agreements. And I opposed literally every single one again, again whether it was Clinton or Bush or Obama or Trump. And uh, these always sold out American workers. So some didn't care. Some said, well, these jobs are going overseas anyway. Others said, well, union labor costs are too high. They always have a reason. But in the end, mm-hmm. they, they always stand with these corporate interests and outsource jobs. And that's, that's why we fight back. All right, I want to talk about uh, electric vehicles here, and there's some in Congress. In fact, uh, one of them is your fellow senator in the state of Ohio, J.D. Vance, who wants to eliminate the EV tax credits. And what what gets me on this one here, you you know China is leading the pack when it comes to uh, electric vehicles. Is this just going to open the door for more more vehicles from China, in your opinion? No, it's exactly the opposite. What what we need, my my job, first of all, the auto industry is going to make more electric vehicles. That's their plan. Uh, Second, there is a demand in the United States for electric vehicles. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I don't drive one, probably you don't yet, if you will, but uh, there is a demand in the U.S. for them, and I want to make sure these electric vehicles are made in the United States by UAW workers. If we don't stand strong on that, China makes, as you just said, China makes a zillion electronic and electric vehicles. They are way over capacity, so they, they made more than they, sh- they should have in their economy, and they're going to try to dump them um, at low, relatively lower prices in the United States and undermining our industry and costing us jobs. So when I hear politicians offering these solutions in electric vehicles, they're wrong. I mean, we need to, our mission needs to be to make these into the United States, whatever the market is for electric vehicles, to make them in the United States by union workers. Our, our union workers will continue to make internal combustion engines, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But as, as the society transitions, I want them made here by union workers. And Senator, one more question. I know you got to go. You, you got to be pretty happy that you're on the Senate side right now, considering what's going on in the House. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's why people don't like Washington. These, they're just playing games in the House. Uh, they're, they're these people that are radicals that they don't really get serious about, about doing their jobs. Uh, we passed, we kept the government open by better than a three to one margin in the House. In the Senate, it was like something like 79 to 20. Uh, and the House just played games. We did it bipartisan. We had uh, uh, virtually every Democrat and a majority, a strong majority of Republicans. 
the House, um, they just want to do everything by one party, and they're not getting anything done. Only when they did it bipartisanly did they keep the government open in the House. And I hope that would be the, 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 the construct or the model for doing it um, in the future in the House. But looking at this situation there, I don't know if it will be. I, I, I pray to God it will be. I hear you. Me too. Okay, Senator, thank you for joining us here on America's Workforce. All right. Thanks, Flash. Thanks, buddy. Once again, Senator Sherrod Brown from Washington. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the plight of the UAW worker on the assembly line. It's not a pretty picture. That story coming up next. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW dot O-R-G. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Now... Back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or X. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go to our live line right now and welcome to the show Sarah Lazar. Sarah put together an article for The Nation magazine, Your Body Suffers the Unremarkable Pain of an Auto Assembly Line Worker. You know, the mainstream media talks about the strike, how many people are on strike, how the strike has expanded, the demands of the workers, but they really haven't focused on the auto worker himself or herself. This is not an easy job. And Sarah took the opportunity to talk to several of them who, uh, who they're actually, they're hurting. Sarah Lazard, thanks for uh, joining us here on America's Workforce today. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I like to uh, get a little background on uh, new guests that joined the show. I, I know you are a contributor to The Nation magazine, but you're also editor of Workday magazine. How long have you uh, been in the field of journalism? And uh, maybe you could speak to that and 
and talk about. I, I would assume you do articles like this. Can you uh, can you give us some more details on that? Yeah, I've been a full-time journalist for about 10 years and was a freelancer before that. And I'm really lucky to work with a great team of reporters at Workday Magazine. We focus on labor in the Midwest, especially Minnesota, but also look internationally. And we get to engage in publishing partnerships with really great publications like The Nation Magazine, In These Times, The American Prospect. Good, good, good. Well, let's uh, get into this uh, article here. You started off with an individual by the name of Daniel Carpenter who was one month past his 40th birthday when he suffered neck pain so severe he thought he was having a stroke. Um, <laughs> when I read that, I'm saying, wow, this job really is pretty darn difficult. Can you, uh, can you give us some detail? Now, did you talk to Daniel about this, uh, this whole situation? Yeah, I had a lot of conversations with Daniel. The interesting thing about his story is how unremarkable it is. The thing that made me want to look into this issue is actually before September 14th, before UAW started their stand-up strike, I went to a practice picket at the Chicago Assembly Plant, which is run by Ford. It was outside of the UAW Union Hall, Local 551. And almost every worker I talked to said that they have pain. It ranged from annoying aches to serious back problems. I was told over and over again how this job really grinds your body down. Just the repetitive motion of working on the assembly line, having to move all day long with very few breaks can lead to all sorts of musculoskeletal disorders. And the thing about these disorders is that, you know, they can range from aches and pains to, you know, rotator cuff injuries, you know, and problems that can be harbingers of really serious uh, problems down the line, but they lack some of the shock value of other injuries. You know, they're not amputations, and because mm -hmm. of that, they're much more difficult to count. Um, you know, the experts I talked to said that they thought that the OSHA data was a little unreliable because there, there are so many factors that can lead someone to not reporting an injury as workplace-related, including fear of retaliation. But what you really find is that these kinds of injuries can uh, really erode quality of life both at work and outside of work. And so it felt important to me to tell this story because we're talking about auto workers. This is one of the top news stories in the country right now, but I don't actually feel that there's been enough conversation about what they actually do and the toll that, that their work yeah. takes. Yeah. Now, has you, you, know, you said that some of them are afraid to speak out on this. In, in this case, and there's more, there's a couple other, there's one uh, woman here and uh, Chris Viola, is another individual that you talk to. I want to cover all of them, but are they afraid to speak out about, uh, about what's happening on the job? Because I mean, they do have union protections, right? Yes. And people with unions definitely have more protections against retaliation and also more ergonomic protections, but I would argue they still aren't sufficient. Um, so Daniel Carpenter, the main person that I profiled in this piece, um, you know, it's, I, we put the word unremarkable in the headline because the story really is unremarkable. He has engaged in repetitive motion in his jobs at GM, which he's had for almost 19 years. And even though he's relatively young and healthy, um, when he was just past his 40th birthday, he su suffered severe neck pain 
for which he ultimately had to have surgery. And that surgery was thankfully successful, but he still lives in fear that it could happen again. And he sort of looks back at the different jobs that he's had, and he, he believes that it was workplace-related. He believes that very specific jobs he did where you have to do motions over and over, you have to reach, you have to bend your neck in awkward ways, he really believes that they are to blame. He ultimately opted not to report his injury as work-related simply because he thought it would be hard to prove, and he didn't really want to deal with the cumbersome process of having to make that case to his company. And, you know, that's just one example of how these kinds of injuries can be a little difficult to track. I'm just wondering here, has this been going on a lot in recent years? And I bring that up. I read a story about, uh, it was a Stellantis plant, which is outside of Toledo. They're on strike as well. And one of the workers there said uh, the production is has been increasing because of demands from the auto industry. Obviously, they've got more technology that has uh, entered the landscape when it comes to uh, creating an automobile on the assembly line and all that. But it's like push, 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 faster, faster, faster. Is that part of the problem that's that's uh, occurring right now with the auto workers? So I can't point to any definitive data saying, yes, this is objectively increasing, you know, over a certain time decades ago. But what I can say is that workers have repeatedly complained about having to work long hours, mandatory overtime, not having enough time off. And that's where some of the demands of the UAW uh, stand-up strike really come in, is one of the key factors that determines your ability to recover from injuries and take care of your body when working on an assembly line or a distribution center is simply being able to rest. Um, Another factor to consider, I spoke with a source at UAW who said that some contractually protected programs have suffered from concessions just like we've seen with wages and other provisions. So the big three automakers used to have full-time ergonomics representatives who were appointed by the union and paid by the company. But according to that source, sometime after 2006, those ergonomics jobs were actually combined with other responsibilities. So as a result, there are no longer full-time positions that are solely dedicated to ergonomics. And that source believes that that has reduced the responses to injuries and complaints. So that's part of the big picture, why they're getting so uh, so many injuries on the job. Again, we're not talking about an injury like uh, an amputation. Well, there's probably some of those. But the bottom line, this is just a grueling process where you get musculoskeletal injuries, and it just wears on your body. And I know a lot of them are taking you know, various medications in order to stay on the job, and I would imagine some of them, too, are at the point where they have to move on to something else. You, you mentioned... The time on the job, and I saw in your article, 12 hours, six or seven days a week, week after week. Um, has anybody talked about hiring more people to lighten the load, or, or they don't want to do that, uh, to your knowledge? Well, the UAW president, Sean Payne, um, a reform challenger elected last March, has earlier in the bargaining process uh, suggested the idea of a 32-hour work week but at 40 hours of pay. So in other words, you work 32 hours with no reduction in your pay. Um, And I talked to several workers who thought that that would be really, really helpful. Um, And and it could also 
uh, lead to more hiring and more jobs. Um, so, sense. you know, I think that the union is putting forward some measures that the workers I talk to believe would be helpful. Um, you know, there's not just a physical toll. There's also a mental and emotional toll. You know, the same long hours that are hurting your body are also making it hard to spend time with your family and your kids and go to barbecues and do these activities that really make life the joy that it is. And also it can be very mentally and emotionally taxing just doing repetitive motion on an assembly line or in a distribution center all day. And to your point, I mean, you start off that article, as I mentioned, Dan Carpenter. I mean, he's, he's not even 40 years old. And uh, he was with his girlfriend at the time of a wedding. They were staying at a cabin. He, he couldn't even walk. He could, he's not even 40 years old, and he couldn't even walk. Well, there's more that uh, Sarah talked to, and we'll do that in the next segment. Sarah Lazar, contributing writer for The Nation magazine, also the editor of Workday magazine and contributing editor for In These Times. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland at 216-881-1802. Call Music Talent of Cleveland as your dependable source for professional musicians in Northeast Ohio. Union musicians add harmony to weddings, elegance to parties, and uplifting music for all events. Music Talent of Cleveland contracts solo and ensemble musicians as well as bands and orchestras for single engagements. So hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland today. 216-881-1802. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. When you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate it. Those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go back to the city of Chicago. Joining us on our live line today is Sarah Lazar. She's a contributor to The Nation magazine, and she's also the editor for Workday magazine. We touched on that briefly. 
The uh, article we're talking about is your body suffers the unremarkable pain of an auto assembly line worker. And again, we want to talk about what's going on with workers in America. And this is something the mainstream media often misses. I mean, hardly ever covers. So, Sarah, I appreciate what you did. Now, you, in your article, you talked to Dan Carpenter. We talked to uh, we talked about that in the first segment there. And he had two more, Donya and also Chris, Chris Viola and Donya Ferdinandson who is an assembly line worker in Toledo, Ohio. Now, was was basically these three people that you talked to? And if you can, uh, pick it up with Danya. Go ahead. Yeah, so Danya had a really compelling way to describe the injuries that come from repetitive motion. One thing that workers told me is that even though there's broad public support for the UAW strike, uh, numerous polls, find that the super majority of people in the U.S. support the workers against the bosses, even still there's a gap in awareness of the toll that the job takes and what the job actually looks like and how it grinds down your body. So here's how she described it to me. She said the best way she knows how to describe repetitive motion injuries is by suggesting a challenge. And I'm going to just read her quote because I think it's really clear. So she said, take all your clothes, put them in a basket, pick up the basket, take them to the wash area, put the basket down, lift the lid, put in detergent, bend down, put them in the washer, shut the lid, then reach into the washer and pull the clothes out, stand back up, bend down, put them in the basket, carry them to the dryer, put them in, repeat that for half an hour nonstop. And then she said, and I'm almost done, if you do that for half an hour with no break, then tell me how you'd like to do that for 12 hours, six or seven days a week, week after week, month after month, year after year. And as you're doing it year after year, you're getting a year older. The body can only do that so long. Then you got back problems, wrist problems, hip problems. We all have that. It's an amazing description. Amazing description. My back is hurting just with you reading that right now. <laughs> She's that's a, was she up was, was she did she just come up to you and, and tell you that I mean I'm just wondering because yeah, some people are afraid to speak out but uh, did you pry that out of her that she said hey I want to talk to you about what's going on uh, on this job so the people in this article who I talked to I actually got in touch through auto worker contacts and Donya was suggested to me as someone who has a lot to say about this issue. So I called her up, and she was extremely interested in telling her story and talking to me. Okay, there's another Chris Viola, who's uh, 40 years of age, uh, one of the co-workers with the, the first person we talked about, Dan Carpenter. What's, uh, what's Chris's story? So, you know, I chose Chris to profile because he's not one of the bad cases, and that's something he's aware of, and I wanted to show that even the people who do not have it worse still suffer bodily harm from this job. So a few years ago, um, you know, working for GM, he had the job of putting glass for windows into doors. Um, and so he used to grab this with his thumb and fingers. But one thing someone who doesn't do that for a living might not think of is what is the toll that that has on your hands if you do that several hundred times a day? the way you hold the actual glass suddenly becomes very high stakes. And it became a problem for him. His hands started hurting very badly. They became swollen. He would wake up in the middle of the night. He told me from the pain, 
he couldn't do activities that he enjoyed doing anymore, like playing video games. So he eventually figured out that he actually needed to hold the glass a different way. So he cupped his hands around the glass rather than pinching it. And that ultimately helped the pain to subside. But this case also really illustrates the fact that your bodies are just very vulnerable and these tiny little motions you do, they may seem innocuous to the average person who doesn't do assembly line work, but these workers know that they can really result in some serious pain. Just amazing stuff that you uncovered. Now, these three people that you talked to, uh, do you see doing more? I mean, uh, hopefully this strike is going to come to to an end here. I I understand they are making progress, uh, especially with the Ford Motor Company. Um, and we're seeing more and more layoffs as a result, but I'm just wondering with what you were able to accomplish with, uh, just these individuals, what's, what's the next uh, plan of action here? Yeah. Well, I think that one important thing to note is that these issues of pain are getting attention because workers are organizing and taking powerful action to make demands to improve their condition. But these problems exist well beyond the big three. They're rampant throughout the auto industry as well as throughout other industries. And so, you know, my hope is that these auto workers walk out of the strike with significant gains and that workers in other industries say, hey, hey, if I organize, if I make bold demands, you know, I, I too and we too can improve some of our conditions. And in general, you know, I, I don't know that we'll see a 32-hour work week for no reduced pay come out of the strike. I, I'm not saying we will. I'm not saying we won't. But even if we don't, the fact that that's been put out there um, by a major labor leader to me is also a hopeful sign because really overwork is a component of this. There's no way around breaks and rest being a solution to these kinds of muscus musculoskeletal injuries in terms of mitigating and ideally preventing them. Now, we talked about the ergonomics. They had an official, the company paid for uh, somebody that was handling, overseeing ergonomics at, uh, I don't know which plant that was. I guess all of them at one point, the big three used to have a full-time ergonomic rep. Uh, The union isn't pushing for that. They're they're instead pushing for the 32-hour week. Uh, But I'm wondering, do you think that that would make a difference if the company would pick up on that and, and go back to what they were doing prior to 2006? I believe that a 32-hour work week for 40 hours of pay would make a big difference. Um, I'm not sure if there are ergonomics demands being made in negotiations. UAW has not publicized them. Um, you know, I think we'll learn, you know, if, if and when a contract emerges out of this fight, we'll learn what's in it. Um, but I do think just based on the conversations I've had with workers, um, 32 hours would be a really big deal. Big deal. No doubt about it. Well, the good news is, and you touched on this briefly, there's a lot of public support for, for the union. In fact, uh, we got some new polling and talked about that uh, last week. Uh, four out of five Americans support the UAW over the big three automakers. And at one point, I think Gallup did a survey and only 19% supported management in the big three. Are you at all surprised by that, Sarah? I'm really not surprised by it. I mean, you know, polling shows that there's a lot of union enthusiasm right now. Um, 
you know, I think that the auto execs are pretty desperate to try to spin the public sentiment in their favor, um, which is why they've sought to frame the auto workers' demands as unreasonable or untenable. But we are seeing public opinion strongly on their side. I mean, overwhelmingly. We're talking super majorities. It's not even close. Well, they gave themselves a 40% pay raise, so they might might have goofed on that one. They, they definitely did not. They didn't set the tone right going into these negotiations when they gave themselves a 40% pay raise. It's amazing. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here. Sarah Lazar, contributor to The Nation magazine, editor of Workday magazine. Any uh, articles you want to call attention to from uh, from Workday here that we should be prepared for? Um, yeah, you know, we've been covering the um, UAW strike a lot. My colleagues, um, Amy Steger and Isabella Escalona, have done really excellent reporting from picket lines in Minnesota and Wisconsin, so I encourage folks to go check those out. And then I also just want to shout out that there are a lot of other labor reporters doing really great work on this, and Labor Notes published an excellent piece back in July that talked about the bodily hazards that come from repetitive motion. Well, Sarah, thank you much for for sharing your story with us here on America's Workforce. It's important we get that worker point of view because we just don't hear it enough. So you keep doing what you're doing, and you got a home here on America's Workforce. Okay, sister? Uh, Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure talking. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Marjorie Kelly, author of the book Wealth Supremacy, will be joining us. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers' International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Lyuna. Find out what it takes for Lyuna to keep America running at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge, to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting iwdistrictcouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or X. That would be AWF Union Podcast. All right, let's go to line number two. 
Joining us on our live line from Boston today is Marjorie Kelly, author of a book titled Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and Bias Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. And we seem to have a lot of crises, no doubt about that. In a <laughs> nutshell, we hear a lot about income inequality. You got the haves mm-hmm. and you got the have-nots. And uh, I guess what we're going to talk about here, Marjorie, is the, the haves that are taking more money from the have-nots. <laughs> it seems to be yeah, going absolutely. on. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's the name of the game, isn't it, Ed? (laughs) You get out of my pocket. You've already taken way too much money here. (laughs) So, so, you know, let's, let's get into the book here, but first talk to me about yourself. I understand you are a distinguished senior fellow. I apologize for the senior part, but uh, (laughs) you work at the democracy collaborative. Can you give us a little details on that? Yeah, so we're a national nonprofit, and we're working to catalyze a more democratic economy that works for all of us. So, you know, we work for worker ownership. We built the uh, Evergreen Co-ops in Cleveland, which hire formerly incarcerated people, and workers do all the laundry for Cleveland Clinic. So we do work on the ground, and we also do work, you know, in in, in the idea space, because we think it's important that people understand the war on workers is, is is underway, and it's time that we're we're fighting back, as as many of us are. Yeah, this uh, it's been a brutal war, and you, there's there's uh, you know ups and downs, and you know if you take a look at history with unionism, especially when Roosevelt was president, and we had a good period there from the 30s yes. through the 60s, and then. Uh, you're probably the same opinion as I, that Ronald Reagan tr- kind of upset the apple cart, don't you think? Absolutely, Ed. I, ha- I have a chart in my book I show, you know, so in the 80s is when people, they started throwing workers out of work en masse, right? So massive layoffs, also sending jobs overseas. And so you can see weight, the, the portion of income in the country going to workers is plummeting. And the same time, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is soaring. So that's exactly what's going on. In order to up the income to capital and wealth, the income to labor has been slashed. That's the, that's the war. So when you talk about this war, I mean, do you have any data on this? I mean, what, what has happened here uh, over the course of several decades? So you can talk about how wealth supremacy, and it, it's really taken over the, the entire country, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, it really has. And a lot what I talk about is how this is structural. I mean, it's built into the corporation. There's this strange phenomenon where workers are not members of the corporation. <laughs> it, you know, they don't have a vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go to some place every day and do the work for 30 years and you have no vote and, uh, and you can be thrown out of work in, in a minute. And an algorithm that might hold stock for 15 minutes, it's considered an insider and it has a vote. So this is, it's really backwards. And, you know, this is why I call it a bias, Ed. I call it, you know, wealth supremacy. I call it capital bias because it's very much like, like uh, sex bias or race bias. Certain people matter and other people don't. So you said it's built into the system. How do we get it yeah. out of the system, Marjorie? <laughs> That's a tall order, I know. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. And so what we need is, you know, we need a new system. We need a democratic economy. I mean, you know, this, 
the war on workers, there's also, of course, the war on nature. <laughs> you know, so this the system was built in the 1800s and really is not suited to where we are now. And there's there's a lot that we can do. I mean, I'll just point to one thing. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has floated policy saying 40% of board seats ought to be reserved for workers and the purpose of the corporation, this is for any corporation over a billion dollars in revenue, it needs to have a, a purpose of serving the public good and not just making a few people rich. So the corporation needs to evolve. That's a big piece of what it means to have a democratic economy. You know what comes to mind in this conversation, I remember when the, uh, the uh, UAW was trying to organize in Chattanooga Tennessee. Mm -hmm. This was, I believe, almost 10 years ago, 2014. And uh, they wanted, Volkswagen wanted a workers' council, which is pretty popular in Germany. I mean, it's workers on the board, kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And they said, uh -huh. oh, oh, no, we can't do that kind of thing. Is is that, that would be a game changer if we were able to accomplish something like that in, in the United States, right? It would be a game changer. I mean, you know, it should be as easy to join a union as it is to join a mutual fund, right? I mean, we need unions, mm -hmm. but we also know there's not enough of them and, 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 and jobs have been decimated. Um, you know, 40% of jobs are, are contingent, part-time, gig, subcontract, self-employed, you know, so the, the full-time job has been destroyed. So, and that makes it really difficult for unions. You know, and so we need to get into the boardroom. We we deserve a seat there. In you know, when big decisions are being made, that's where that's where the real game is. Now let's take a look at a couple moments in history here. I want to talk about the pandemic, but before that, the Great Recession of two thousand eight, which uh, uh -huh. some people are still digging out of today. Let's be honest about that. How do you? How does that fit into uh, wealth supremacy? Yeah, that's a good one, Ed, because really, um, you know, you had you had some banks doing good loans. Our president, Stephanie McHenry, was president of Shore Bank Cleveland, and they make good loans to disadvantaged people. And, and then the predatory lenders moved in, replaced those loans with predatory mortgages, and basically took the equity from people's homes and virtually destroyed the global economy in the process but guess what who's now buying those foreclosed homes you know it's private equity it's 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 hedge funds they're they're swooping mm -hmm. in 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 cincinnati i know one out of five homes are being bought by big institutional investors like that and then they raise the rents and they neglect the maintenance and they do really aggressive um uh, you know pushing people out of homes when you can't keep up with your with your rent so so the the war, <laughs> it takes a lot of forms, right? It's all about let's let's make shareholders wealthy and let's take it out of everyone else's hide. Yeah, yeah, it's all about the shareholders. We're seeing that in so many labor struggles. Uh, in Warrior Met, there was you mentioned uh, uh, hedge funds in Wall Street. I mean, they had an almost two year strike there. They just could not penetrate that. And we've seen a ton of hedge uh -huh. funds that's taken over media giants, the newspaper right. industry, and, and stripped them down to, to basics. Uh, it, I, I don't know. So, I mean, tr I'm trying to figure out um, how workers, I, I guess, I mean, unions, obviously, the answer here collectively, in order to change things. Uh, what you talk about in your book is what's going on in America. 
Do you feel, I mean, you've done a lot of research on this, Marjorie, but do you feel that there is a way out if we get enough people on the same page on this? I'm, obviously, this is an education process here, right? Yeah, it is an education process. It's an awakening process. You know, we tend to think of wealth as this benevolent thing. You know, people look at their, uh, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a few assets, you look at how your portfolio is performing. And those numbers, you know, wealth just seems to fall out of the sky. <laughs> the numbers uh -huh. go up. Nobody asks where that wealth came from. You know, we don't notice that companies are buying other companies and creating monopolies and, and destroying family businesses and and driving workers out of the out of the workforce and, and and so on. So I think when we can recognize that wealth has actually become a predatory force, uh, then we can say, well, well, hold on, we can't have an economy that's designed to make wealthy people wealthier. That, that's what we have. And once we see that that's a bias and that's not legitimate, my hope is that that will drive the kind of movement that we need to make the change that we need. We talked about moments in history. The other moment in history is the pandemic. And uh -huh. I think you saw, you saw what happened here where, you know, the nurses came together and we, we, and we saw organizing, which is still going on today. Does that, does, is that a glimmer of hope here for you, Marjorie? I think it is. You know, I think we need to unite these various forms of organizing. I think, you know, labor organizing is a critical, critical piece of this. You know, people who are organizing against climate change. And I, and I think people of color who are saying, you know, we need a, a seat at the table in this economy. We need, we need if, if we can get together, I think there's a lot more of us uh, than there is of, of the 1%. Um, but yes, we, we do need to organize and labor is a big piece of that. Marjorie Kelly, author of wealth supremacy, how the extractive economy, and boy, I tell you, they've done a great job extracting money from us, how the extractive <laughs> economy and the bias rules of capitalism drive today's crises. Uh, book is out. It's doing well. I take it. It is. There's a lot of interest Ed. people like uh, people are ready for this conversation. That's what I'm seeing. Okay, real good. Well, thank you for joining us today. Yep, thanks for having me. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, the communication workers and IATSE, since it's Stagehands Day in America. Until then, all of you, have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.